Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we look at what parks mean in the 21st century. Parks were suddenly classrooms, were suddenly boardrooms, were gyms, were your social space. Everything that you normally would be doing elsewhere suddenly had to happen in public space. Plus, a little bit on Cambodian rock. I've heard stories of people literally sort of shoving records into nooks and crannies and in houses and then returning after the war and returning after the killing fields and trying to reclaim their houses, trying to reclaim these, these records. All that and more in the next hour on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The architect Norman Foster was once asked what his favorite building is. His reply wasn't a building at all. It was a Boeing 747, the Jumbo Jet. Known as the Queen of the Skies, the 747 revolutionized air travel when it made its commercial debut in 1970, allowing us to go farther and faster than ever before. After over five decades and more than 1,500 planes built, Boeing is holding a ceremony to mark the delivery of the last 747 you ever build. Chris Lord is Monaco's U.S. editor and he joined us from Seattle, 30 minutes from the Boeing factory. More than any other aircraft ever, that plane, the 747, is so part of our collective culture. It was the plane that the Beatles first landed in America in. It was the plane that almost everybody who traveled in their youth will have been on a 747 doing any long-haul flight. That was the workhorse of the aviation industry. And it has been since, as you say, 1970, when it was first delivered for Pan Am. It was big, huge aircraft, roomy, with passenger experience and comfort hardwired into its design. So after 1,573 of them, the last one will roll off and be delivered uh, on Tuesday uh, here in Washington State at the Everett factory, the Boeing factory, the very first place that it was ever built. Um, and, you know, the, the the original sort of designer, if you like, of the, of the very first designer for the 747, Joe Sutter, unfortunately, isn't with us anymore. But many of those original crew who were involved in the creation of this iconic piece of engineering and design uh, will be there at Everett uh, on Tuesday. I will be there. There's lots of press here. It's a big day in the history of aviation, yes, but also I think it's a big day in the history of of mobility, of travel, of how that went from being the, something that was the reserve of those who could pay lots and lots of money to travel to being actually a thing that the masses could enjoy, a middle-class thing to travel around the world, and not just domestically, but long-haul flights, and you could do it in relative comfort. And I think it's it's going to be an inspiring day. I've all just been meeting with various people from Boeing and also from some of the carriers like Lufthansa who continue to fly uh, later developments of the 747. Everybody has an, a story with this with this plane. And I think anyone who's listening to this can also probably think they can all picture themselves at some point in their lives sat on this jet and on Wednesday, it will fly into the sunset, the last one to be built. The the interesting thing is, though, that the Queen of the Skies occupied an incredibly important place for five decades in aviation. But now, I mean, you mentioned Lufthansa. I think there are only 44 passengers, uh, 
passenger versions, I should say, of the 747 still in service. More of half, more than half of those are flown by Lufthansa. There is a real sense that it no longer occupies a useful place in the modern aviation. Its scale still makes it very, very useful for cargo flights. And that's probably what we will continue to see in that unmistakable sound of the of the 747. We will hear those planes to the skies as cargo aircraft. And in fact, the one that's going to be delivered on Tuesday will go to Atlas Air, who will who are a cargo carrier. But the, the, the issue really with the 747 is that despite its later variations, the fuel efficiency, because of that scale and that heft that it has, it just isn't there. And Boeing and the various carriers that still work with them have, have found ways to get around that. But now, really, I think there are new uh, new aircraft coming, not least from Boeing. The 777X is still in development, which is uh, similar in scale to the 747, but has a twin engine, much more fuel efficient, uh, and, and but yet can still go those distances. And that's probably going to be the workhorse of the future here, I would imagine, for many carriers who are looking to maybe replace their 747s or, or similar or their A380s or whatever. That's going to be a very important jet, I would say. I think that to, to your point about that it's, not been able to keep up. I think that the reality is that it's it has kept up for a very long time. I just think that now that that scale and in our age where we are thinking more and more about efficiencies, uh, carriers are looking but, but are looking to the future. But make no mistake, as you say, Lufthansa and others continue to fly 747s. Lufthansa itself has been very involved in helping to innovate on the 747 and come up with some of those new variations for its needs. Uh, but I think that there are increasingly uh, new challenges to that long-haul workhorse coming down the track. There are, aren't they? Because it's not long since Airbus decided that it was going to stop producing the A380, the mm. other enormous workhorse of the sky. Um, people either buying them second-hand, which is what they're still doing with the 747 as well, but it, it, how much have we changed the way that we use our aircraft? That you know, Many people think that actually the, the goal to spend 24 hours on a plane isn't actually what we really want to do. And enormous aeroplanes and, and, and passenger aeroplanes, at least during COVID, became something that just seemed quite obsolete. So I think one of the big changes in our in the last 30 years is that what we used to call spoken, spoken wheel style travel, which means that you fly on a very large plane in very large numbers to a hub air, air, airport. So, you know, the, your, your Heathrow's and your Frankfurt's and, and what have you. Uh, and then from there, you then take connecting smaller flights uh, on smaller planes, rather, to to those next onward destinations. That was, in a way, the model of the long haul, as it was as it was always known. What's happened in recent years is planes have got smaller and in the search for more fuel efficiency, a lot more direct routes that never really existed before have come into front route maps. And that obviously has been a big challenge in part to, uh, you know, big expensive aircraft, like you say, like the A380, which just, you know, so few of them really were, were made relative to something like the 747, given how much money went into its design by Airbus. Uh, and, and actually, the, you know, the main customer for them really was the Gulf Airlines, who were probably really ultimately thinking that they were going to be doing transatlantic flights and then flights down to to uh, to, the, to down under to Australia and to New Zealand and so on, and therefore it kind of made sense. But for a, but I think that spoken wheel style of of travel, in a way, like you say, with COVID, that was a little bit that that's been a little bit disrupted. But also, it's it's now a question I think increasingly about those efficiencies because that model in one way could be could be, if there was a much more efficient aircraft fuel efficient aircraft came in 
as we're talking about with the 777X, that spoken wheel becomes a lot more realistic when getting more people to one space becomes a lot easier when you've got bigger aircraft that are fuel efficient again. I think it's I think we are in a we are in a changing moment here, but that fundamental shift from how we travel and more lighter, smaller aircraft doing direct routes, that's been a major, major shift. And and I think I think Boeing and others are very, very conscious of that as they as they look to roll out yet another very, very big jet that's designed for that mass travel long haul workhorse basically. And now it's time for the Foreign Desk Explainer. In 2020, Azerbaijan used military force to take control of the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region from Armenia. Today, there are reports of blockades leading to starvation and sickness. Andrew Muller explains how Vladimir Putin could stop the siege and why he probably won't. There is something profoundly, incurably irritating about geographical anomalies. Those spots on the map vexingly non-contiguous with the country to which they belong. One thinks, for example, of Kaliningrad, Russia's Baltic Sea oblast, separated from the motherland by the width of Lithuania, Poland and Belarus. Ceuta and Melilla, Spain's bits of Morocco. Cabinda, a province of Angola which appears to have wandered off into the borderland between the two Congos. Northern Ireland, which somehow manages to be claimed, yet unwanted, by both the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. None of these itch with quite the ferocity of Nagorno-Karabakh, which appears depressingly likely to flare up properly again. Since December, the 120,000 or so people who call Nagorno-Karabakh home, and actually generally also call it the Republic of Artsakh, a distinction to which we shall return, has been enduring what amounts to a siege, the only road in and out more or less blocked. Shortages of food, fuel and medicine are being reported. It is a grimly serious crisis and a deliberately orchestrated one at that. At which point, the backstory. You will be needing, first of all, to unfold your map of the Caucasus. This is the bit of the former Soviet Union, bordered by Russia to the north, Turkey and Iran to the south, the Black and Caspian Seas on either side. Nagorno-Karabakh specifically is a mountainous region within Azerbaijan, inhabited substantially by ethnic Armenians. While the Soviet Union was a thing, this difficulty was, depending on one's perspective, addressed or avoided by declaring Nagorno-Karabakh an autonomous region within the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan, maybe somewhat akin to conjure a tragically apt comparison to largely ethnically Albanian Kosovo within Serbia, within Yugoslavia. Footnote, if you think this just isn't complicated enough, Azerbaijan has an exclave of its own, the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic, maybe 450,000 people squeezed between Armenia and Iran, save for a corridor linking it to Turkey, but that may be a whole other explainer. Anyway... As the Soviet Union unraveled in the late 1980s and as authorities in Armenia and Azerbaijan prepared for independence, both sides sought a clear answer to the Nagorno-Karabakh question. Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh wanted the territory transferred to Armenia, an idea on which Azerbaijan was unkeen. The Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh eventually declared themselves the Sovereign Republic of Artsakh, an idea on which Azerbaijan was even unkeener. 
At which point, an explainer to the explainer. For the rest of this explainer, we'll call it Artsakh. Not really taking any sides here, but it's what the people who live there seem to prefer. Plus, it's four fewer syllables. War followed, ended in 1994 by an uneasy truce. Skirmishes and shootouts continued, occasionally escalating into something much more serious. A four-day war in 2016, a six-week war in 2020. The latter, largely missed by a world preoccupied by COVID-19, was big. Perhaps 7,000 troops were killed on both sides. The 4,000 or so Artsakh soldiers listed dead or missing amounted to a loss of just over 3% of Artsakh's entire population. The ceasefire agreement which ended this conflict confirmed a victory for Azerbaijan, whose troops retook much of Artsakh as well as adjacent districts previously held by Armenian forces. Significantly to any understanding of the latest developments, this agreement was brokered by Russia, which dispatched roughly 2,000 peacekeepers, though there hasn't been much peace to keep. Since the 2020 war ended, at least another 1,100 people have been killed or wounded. And now, very possibly sensing that Russia is otherwise preoccupied, Azerbaijan appears to be trying to press its advantage. Since December, the only highway connecting Artsakh to Armenia, the Lachin Corridor, has been obstructed by people who Azerbaijan insists are environmentalists, concerned about illegal mining by the Armenians of Artsakh. Our demands are that we want to hold the necessary monitoring of the mines that are being illegally exploited. We want to assess what are the damages that have been made up until today. And until we are granted access to hold the needed monitoring, we will be here. Even if this is the case, and just to be clear, it isn't, Azeri authorities, who are not usually known for their indulgence of protest, have proved pointedly dilatory re-doing anything about it, even amid gathering condemnation by pretty much every international body you can think of. Armenia's Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan this week spoke by phone to President Vladimir Putin of Russia and urged him to take action to reopen the Lachin Corridor, which Russia's peacekeepers are supposed to control. It is fair to assume that this conversation was what wincing diplomats describe as they sponge blood from the carpet as a full and frank exchange of views. Last November, Pashinyan very obviously snubbed Putin during a photo call at a meeting of the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, complaining that the CTSO had been less than no help in resolving Artsakh's predicament. It is a cynical but reasonable supposition that Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev, has calculated that a fracas on Russia's southern border is high on the list of things with which Putin cannot be bothered just now. Aliyev will also have calculated that Putin is still seeking to maintain friendly relations with President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, Azerbaijan's staunch ally, and perhaps even that Putin feels instinctively more comfortable dealing with autocrats such as Aliyev and Erdogan than he does with rancorous Democrats such as Pashinyan. 
The 2020 war demonstrated that Azerbaijan holds the military advantage over Artsakh and Armenia. Azerbaijan is now trying to discover whether Russia's war in Ukraine bestows a diplomatic and strategic advantage, which may prove decisive. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24. And now it's time for a highlight of Monaco on Culture, where me, Karen Krizanovic and Rob Bound discuss this year's Oscar nominations. I was outraged by several snubs, of course. And I'm not normally outraged by several snubs, but okay. I've been to all of the major film festivals last year. Yeah. And this is like the filmic Christmas for yeah. me. You know, I see that the package is under the tree and some of them have my name on them. I like so, it. Yes. Okay. We did a program about tar recently, and Jason Solomon's on that program sort of said that there there is a sort of Venice to Oscar's kind of runway, right? That mm-hmm. it sort of has that sort of feel about it. So if that's the case, then maybe there have been some genuine snubs. We'll talk about those later in the program, perhaps. Mm. Well, I mean, it's section. interesting that he says that because everything everywhere all at once was released in May in this country. So yeah, you know, I mean, you could kind of say that. But, all right. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll let you f- the critic circle disagree I'll argue with Jason. One thing that I would say that I'm really happy about the Oscars this year, because I do care for the Oscars as a show, as a TV show. And I care actually about the ratings, because sometimes I feel like, oh, are they not relevant anymore? The ratings Mm. are dropping. I think this year there will be a bump in the Mm -hmm. ratings, precisely because they've nominated quite a lot of big films. They did very well at the box office. They needed that, in a way, after Mm -hmm. a decade with a lot of indies, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, they're saying because of Maverick, Avatar, people are invested in seeing what happens to these films. And I think you're absolutely right. Mm. And I hope so, too, because the further the Oscars falls from the popularity of television's popularity list, the more endangered cinema could be. But then again, we all know that Hollywood needs to be glamorous. It needs to be glamorous. Otherwise, we're not going to... <laughs> it's not doing it right if it's not glamorous. Not if, doing, not, yes. if, there are, if there isn't beauty and a bit of... Um, yeah, you need a handsome and beautiful red carpet. You need people to play their roles, right? This is the last job. The last acting job they have to do well is do this TV show well, right? I mean, what we like about the red carpet, and there's a lot we like about it, but it's aspirational. You go, yeah. wow, and when I need to go to you know, wear some evening wear... I'll just steal that look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. We'll give out your uh, email address later for uh, any, any fashion designers wanting to <laughs> to furnish Krizanovic on the red carpet. Should we dive straight in? We're going to do it sort of in, in categories, and we'll buzz around and we'll talk about some of the more notable bits. Karen, I know, has got an iPhone brimming with statistics <laughs> or a back of a fag packet. I can't, can't quite see what it is from here. It's, it's, it's a napkin, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so should we kick off with the best actress category? This is Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna de Aramas for Blonde, Andrea Risborough, surprisingly for two Leslie, not surprisingly in terms of quality, but what she's doing on the list. Michelle Williams for The Fablemans and Michelle Yeo as discussed for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Fernando, I'm going to start with you. What have you, who did you like? Whose performances did you like from this list? Well, I think my all-time favourite from the list is Kate Blanchett for Tar, which I think is generally a personal favourite. It's that film that I was like, wow, from the beginning. It's a long film. That's the interesting thing. People talk about long films, but if they're good, I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and, you know, it talks about some things they were living today, you know, cancel culture and among other topics, but it does it in such an intelligent way. It doesn't kind of treats us as, as stupid, the, the viewer, and, and that's what I really love about it. And she's amazing. And I have to say, I think Karen Krizanovich does look a little bit like Kate Blanchett, I think. I don't know that's... what he's talking about. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, God, this is, uh, Karen's not even blushing anymore because she knows it. Karen, uh, so Fernando's favourite, and then we'll ask you to make a prediction at the end of this little section, but uh, what about Kate for Tar and what about that list? I think it's an amazing list. I think it's very surprising. Anna de Amos and, and also Michelle Williams, I think, were shocking inclusions, really. I mean, Anna was great in Blonde, which is, you know, a hard watch. Mm. Michelle Williams was playing Michelle Williams, a role that she plays in The Fablemans, which is a pivotal role, but it, it's not this really... This is sort of the young Spielberg's mum, isn't Yes, it? but it's not a leading role, really. It's a support. So I've heard, I read around, and I've, there is something called category fraud. Yes. So our listeners might not know about it. It makes sense to me, but would you like to enlighten the listening several, Karen? Category fraud <laughs> is where it's unclear who's a supporting player and who is a leading player. Mm-hmm. And this Michelle Williams inclusion in the leading role here is one of those examples. So there's a funny thing where you can spend, you can have a lot of on-screen time but be nominated for Best Supporting Actress, mm-hmm. say, because people think you should get a nomination and maybe you'll win it, but you won't win it for the big role despite your, your screen time. That's that a that good, happens yeah, as well, right? That's a, that's a good point, just because we've seen her a lot. I mean, she is yeah. playing his mother. But then again, Paul Dano played his father, was on screen quite a bit, maybe yeah. not as much. And didn't even get a look in, and he certainly deserved it. Yeah. So, okay, just to look over this list, I would say really kick out Anna de Armas and kick out Michelle Williams. Not that they didn't do a good job, but include Viola Davis and Daniela Deadweiler in a movie that very few people in the UK have seen called Till. She carries that entire I've heard that's a film. fantastic performance. Yeah. It's a fantastic performance. It's a tough film to watch, but it lands on a warm note, so don't be afraid. It's a horrendous story. Chicago, 1955, son gets lynched and she leaves the coffin open so people can see. She spends most of this movie crying and you're with her every step of the way. It's a powerful performance and I was audibly shocked when she did not get included. The neighbours heard a huge sigh and a throwing of a remote control through a TV screen at Krizanovich Mansions. I was accused of doing goggle box. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so we've well, we've got onto snubs already. So I'm gl- thanks sorry for fold- no, I'm thank sorry. you for folding folding that, folding those difficult eggs into the radio souffle already, Karen. So what about predictions? Who do we think? Well, I think it would be a beautiful thing as well if Michelle Yeoh wins. It's not my favorite film, I've got to be honest, but I appreciate that it's original, that it did so well as well. Everything. It had a lot to do with the making. Exactly, of it, but. If I, I am speaking from my heart, and I do like speaking from my heart, it's Kate Blanchett with Tar. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, so that's Best Actress, and we're saying Kate Blanchett here on this program. And Best... Andrea Risborough got her a reward by getting a nomination. That's yeah. her win. That's yeah. it. Okay. The Taking Part Award, though. No, but I mean, I was also interested, in, in, and this is where you're brilliant, Karen, is some of the machinations, not machinations, but some of the work behind the scenes that's done, right? We talked about category four. We'll stay, we'll stick in best actress for 30 seconds more just to talk about seconds. how you can do a campaign, to, mm. to how you can stage a campaign. What are some of the ways? How to scare all the publicists in one go. <laughs> Andrew Risborough is in a film that it cost virtually nothing, was made in 19 days during the pandemic. And she got all of her friends, Howard Stern, who's a friend of the director, Michael Morris, put it out in a show. And then suddenly, Demi Moore, Susan Sarandon, Helen Hunt, Alan Cumming, Edward Norton, Amy Adams, and even Kate Blanchett put her forward saying, this is a great performance. Kate Winslet said, it's the best one I've ever seen. And voila, you get an Oscar nomination. That's how you do it, folks. Uh, Andrea Riseborough, the queen of social media.
And continuing our Oscars coverage, I spoke with the writer of The Whale, Samuel Hunter. The film has been nominated for three Oscars, including Best Actor for Brandon Fraser. Let's have a listen. Yeah, I wrote the play quite a while ago now. I, I, I first started writing it around 2009. And um, I was living in New York and just trying desperately to find my footing as an off-Broadway playwright. I'd seen like maybe one or two of my plays produced in New York, but just in very small theaters. Uh, and I was teaching essay writing, like Charlie does in the movie, at a university, public university in New Jersey. And I was struggling to connect with my students. And, and at a certain point, like Charlie does in the film, I became kind of desperate and uh, just begged them to write something honest. And so one of my students wrote me a line that ended up in the play and the movie, uh, which was, I think I need to accept that my life isn't going to be very exciting. And so then that just got me interested in writing a play about an expository uh, writing teacher, an essay writing teacher, um, which is kind of an odd place to start. But uh, I uh, eventually started to put some more personal stuff on the line. Um, you know, I grew up in the town where Charlie lives in, in North Idaho, uh, in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Uh, and I had an experience going to a very religious school where I was outed uh, and had to leave. And for many years after that, I self-medicated with food. Uh, and, you know, it's it, Charlie's story is not my exact story. I think like most of my plays, it's kind of an act of auto fiction where I put elements of myself and, but fictionalize them. Uh, but it felt very personal in that way. Um, so yeah, and it was finally produced in New York in 2012, and that's where Darren saw it and then contacted How was the adaptation to it? Because, I mean, to be honest, for those who know uh, about the play, you know, it, sometimes it's a bit hard to imagine how it would look like uh, in a film. Were there many challenges in, in this topic? Well, I think, you know, I, I've written quite a few plays uh, over the years. You know, The Whale was probably 12, 13 plays ago. And I think if I were to adapt another one of my plays into a film, you know, I think I would approach it in that more traditional way of like opening it up, like adding characters, adding locations, adding scenes, maybe flashbacks. But this play specifically, I mean, really the fundamental experience of this story is being in this place with this person in this two bedroom apartment with this man who can't leave. Uh, and, and I, and so like in the beginning, you know, I, I think Darren and I both expected the story to open up, add characters, add locations. But the moment I started, you know, tossing that around in my brain, I was just like, I don't know what this is anymore. I mean, like, I once we leave the apartment, it just kind of felt like, you know, the air got let out of the balloon. It was just like, um, uh, so, you know, early on in our discussions, Darren and I agreed, like, let's keep it in the two-bedroom apartment. But obviously that presented a host of challenges, you know, because uh, but but I also knew like I've, I've watched Darren's movies religiously over the years. And I knew if there was one person who could make a two bedroom apartment visually interesting, it was Darren. Uh, but then there was a lot of, you know, like what lines can we translate into visual storytelling? You know, like what moments, what dramatic moments can we tell without words? You know, I added, uh, you know, a second bedroom to the apartment, which doesn't seem very meaningful, but when we arrived there, we realized that it's this kind of sealed off second bedroom that is uh, kind of the archaeology of his past with his uh, with his lover who had since passed away. And so visually, that kind of tells the, st the story that is told in the play in a monologue. So there was a lot of stuff like that throughout the years. And it was a long process. You know, this was 10 years of, of 
not constant conversation, but like, you know, every, you know, there's a lot of drafts, a lot, a lot of drafts. Where'd you gain all that weight? Someone close to me passed away and it had an effect on me. You haven't seen her since she was eight years old and you're gonna reconnect with her? Sorry. I don't like this. This isn't a good idea. I'm sorry. You say you're sorry one more time. I will shove a knife right into you. I swear to God. Go ahead. What's it gonna do? My internal organs are two feet in at least. And so another thing I would like to, to mention, because, you know, it's not just about, you know, uh, being prized by critics or Oscar nominations, but actually the way it's doing quite well at the box office, you know, uh, yeah. I, I was reading is really maintaining uh, and I see more and more people interested. Uh, how, how do you feel actually seeing because there, there is clearly a big market and, and of course the story can be dark at times and sad. But as I said, there's the humanity and and clearly there is a big appeal, uh, the film. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a couple things. I think, um, I mean, of course there's Brendan and I, and I think like, you know, both his performance, which is just absolutely monumental, but also the fact that there is so much love for that man. I mean, love that I knew that, that there was a lot of affection for him, but I had no idea how many childhoods he crafted, you know what I mean? Like through his, through his movies. Um, and, uh, and then I think it was just kind of, he was the right man for the right role. I mean, this is a role that I've seen. It's been produced all over the all over the world at this point over the last ten years. You know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of productions at this point. And so, you know, I've seen it in, uh, you know, I've seen it in Dallas. I've seen it in New York. I've seen it in small theaters and small towns. I mean, I and I and I know that there that this is not just a story for people in New York and LA. This is not just a story for people of affluence. I think that this is like, uh, it's a very human story that I think a lot of people can relate to on many different levels. Uh, because I think a lot of us have somebody in our life who's like Charlie, and I'm not saying, you know, somebody suffering from the exact same things that Charlie is suffering from. I mean, obesity is just one aspect of Charlie's life. You know, there's so much more else that's going on. And I think grief, people, yeah. that, grief loss, hope. And this is the thing is I think that I, I, another thing I think that we're really connecting with is I, I think it's a very uncynical story and it's a very uncynical character. And I think cynicism nowadays is kind of the law of the land. You know, it masquerades as sophistication. It masquerades as intelligence. But I think faith in other people and hard-won hope is a much more complicated, much more intellectually uh, rigorous thing to have. And I, and I think that the, the, the play in the movie is ultimately a call for that kind of, uh, that lack of cynicism and that hard-won hope. People are amazing. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. Cambodia is not widely regarded as a rock and roll hotbed, but our next guest makes a persuasive case that it should be. D.P. York is the author of Away from Beloved Lover, a Cambodian rock odyssey, which investigates and celebrates a scene which would be remarkable enough even if the musicians who created it hadn't had to find a way to survive war 
and genocide. We spoke to Dee and asked her first about the random encounter with a cover version of Proco Heron's Whiter Shade of Pale that catalyzed her book. I first visited Cambodia in 2012. I went to go and see a journalist friend of mine who lived there. And in the south, there's a mountain called Bokor. And on top of this mountain are these kind of colonial remnants of this hilltop town. And there's an abandoned casino. And I was walking into this abandoned casino and there was a Cambodian man next to me with a kind of boombox on his shoulders. And it was blaring out white shade of pale, the, the, but it wasn't, you know, I could recognize the notes, I could recognize the melody, but then this voice came in and it, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Gary Brooker, it wasn't Keith Reed, and it was, it was definitely not Brooke Hart playing this music. And I had all these questions um, about who the musician was, how this music kind of came about. I went back to Phnom Penh, started researching the music, and really it kind of came into, into being a book out of just personal kind of interest to begin with. Is it possible to say what is distinctive about what Cambodian musicians, especially of the, the rock and roll era, brought to bear on the influences that they started with? I think, you know, there was such a kind of global kind of it was global melting pot of influence from kind of Brazil we had a lot of you know you had samba you had jazz that influenced a lot in the 50s as well you had this kind of uh, growing elite that was really interested in uh, in influence by French music and then you know in the early 60s it was a lot of rock and roll you had so musicians who, again, from kind of the wealthier kind of backgrounds were going and, and going to universities, going to boarding schools in Europe, were bringing back this music, these 45s in their suitcases. Some were arriving intact, some weren't. And they were, you know, that's where it sort of began. And then the music shops started popping up in, in, in the capital. And, and then, of course, it progressed into you know, the Ameri into the Vietnam War and America's influence for military radio. So then there was a kind of harder, kind of harder sound coming in in the 70s. So I think, I think they were just sort of taking that influence and also their influence of their own music. So you'll hear sort of Cambodian instruments blending with electric guitars and blending with these Western sounds to create something that's totally unique. You end up following this trail all the way back to Cambodia. You end up spending a lot of time in Cambodia and you meet a lot of the people who made this music. But of mm -hmm. course, there's this extraordinary and terrifying interregnum in the development of Cambodia's popular music and indeed Cambodia's everything else. Uh, when the Khmer Rouge seized power in 1975 or so and mm -hmm. attempt to effectively restart Cambodia at what they literally called Year Zero. Now, this is obviously vastly pre the period in which anybody could store anything digitally. So how did the people who managed to protect Cambodia's modern music heritage, especially its rock and roll heritage, manage to protect it? I mean, I've heard stories of people literally sort of shoving records into nooks and crannies and in houses and then returning after the war and returning after the killing fields and trying to reclaim their houses, trying to reclaim these, these records. I met one musician who had gone to extraordinary lengths to hide his records underground in a kind of abandoned outpost. And, 
you know, and then and when he discovered them, he didn't have a record player to play them on. He, did, you know, p kids were throwing records into rivers like frisbees because there was nothing to play them on. And 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 so, you know, there were, I think there was a lot of incredible stories and incredible lengths that people went to 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 keep this music. And then, of course, you had the refugee movement after as well. So you had people moving to. Uh, you know, America. There's also a lot of cassettes as well. So there was there was records, there was cassettes that were sort of travelling with people to all corners of the world after the refugee camps. I mean, how hard or otherwise was it to get people to talk about that period in particular? Because I, I've, I've travelled myself in places. Bosnia strikes me as a, a similar example in the 1990s. And the first time I went there, I found people much more excited to talk about the rock bands they'd formed during the siege of Sarajevo than about the siege of Sarajevo itself. Was there a, there a sense that the musicians you spoke to were much happier talking about music than they were talking about uh, the Khmer Rouge? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, not all. I mean, some of them, they felt uh, there was one person I interviewed in particular whose story was so intertwined into kind of his musical story was so intertwined into uh, that time under the Khmer Rouge. It saved his life by playing music for a cadre that then kind of saved him from the killing field. So, you know, some people were more forthcoming than others. And I think, you know, it wasn't something I ever pressed. I'd sort of guide them through their life and then if they were comfortable with talking about that period they would go there and if they didn't then we would move on and we would talk about other things. What I really wanted to get across in the book that is, is that Cambodia is about so much more than just this period of their history and, and, and almost sort of retelling that through the music and through what is still the soundtrack of daily life in Cambodia, you know, 60s and 70s music is still their kind of golden era. It's still what you hear when you're on a bus traveling. It's still on the radio everywhere. You know, the, these, these, a six-year-old child knows who Sinsisamut is. So it's, uh, you know, it's still just as relevant today as it was then. And I think it does give people, you know, who went through that period some, something before when they listen to that music as well. Well, that does bring us, I guess, to an obvious place to wrap up, which is to ask you for a recommendation. If anyone's heard this uh, and their curiosity has been piqued, but they don't know necessarily where to start with the Cambodian music heritage that your book chronicles, um, where would you direct them other than, obviously, to that version of Wider Shade of Pale? There's so much music out there. There's so many more compilations that are coming out now. Um, there was a film done in 2015 called Don't Think I've Forgotten. That's a, a great visual and audio place to start uh, if you can get hold of that film. I think, you know, I mean, for me, one of the first songs after that that I heard, a uh, song, it's actually a Vietnamese cover, cover song by Rosary Satia, who was the most female, uh, most famous female artist from that from that period. And that is a kind of, garage rock belter of a song and it's it's all about youth and uh the you know the wonders of youth and that's a that's a great song i think you know there's just for me a kind of uh, there was a lot of western cover songs that were kind of a portal i think uh into into some of the you know into some of the more cambodian music and so you know there, there's beatles songs there's animal songs there's you know the, i yeah all, all the all the songs of that era, you'll hear uh, cover songs by Cambodians. So that's quite a, quite a kind of easy way, I guess, for a non-Cambodian to get into that music.
And now some happy news. It's about a company that's soaring, Barnes Noble. Yes, the U.S. chain is expanding. And to talk about the recovery of the world's booksellers is the author David Budanis. Inside bookstores, always there's the chance of serendipity and surprises. People you meet, books that weren't curated for you. The Internet can sometimes be a little bit... Certain companies on the Internet, uh, which resemble large rivers in Brazil, the, the Internet can be a little bit like those smooth international airports where there's identical shops and a smooth shopping experience. And no surprises, nothing... It's it's highly curated. Well, a bookstore, there can be a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's kind of like uh, why people like to live in Shoreditch in London or uh, maybe Williamsburg in New York City and stuff. You feel there's surprises coming up. So a bookstore has that. The other one is Barnes & Noble has a director of genius, a man named Mr. Daunt from uh, uh, England who went over there. And the first thing he did was say, I have a great idea. How about I stop with the great ideas from headquarters and empower local managers? In particular, in the old days, used to pay money, uh, public would pay money, and they put really crummy books that didn't sell well in the front windows or tables. You go in and it's boring. So Daunt, one of the things Daunt did was that you don't have to do that. You, the local managers, can do things appropriate for your areas. The staff become enthusiastic. They want to help people. It's great. Tell us a little bit of when you're talking about the, the, the sort of curated, smooth life that the internet sends us down, down into the path that it sends us down. Um, when it comes to business, and also the idea about James Daunt there, um, allowing sort of a, a local touch to be made. What What is the, the, the importance of the idea of serendipity and creativity when it comes to, to retail and business? Uh, it's really hard to... Uh, it's crucial but hard to specify. So uh, if I say um, I'm going to produce, I don't know, a certain number of, uh, of cars at a certain price, I can make sure a factory does it. But if I say I'm going to cu- uh, have an experience where people will kind of like hanging around within formal streets and a range of shops and relatively low rents, and there's no guarantee of what's going to happen, there's no way I can get a, a manager to know exactly what's going to happen. He has to trust that people will like that experience. But that's what human beings are like. Um, uh, you know those famous last lines, hmm, let me just stick my head over this, uh, uh, out of this dugout and see what's over there. Humans love to explore. Um, people like to be responsible for the groups under them. So what Daunt was doing is, um, it works on two levels. The managers and the staff are happy, but also people going there, they don't want everything so smooth. You know, sometimes on Netflix, if you're bored out of your mind. And the films they suggest to you are really dull. They're just similar to the films you saw before. Um, uh, it's the difference between sexual and asexual reproduction. Rotifers have asexual reproduction. What do you get when you have rotifers together? More rotifers. Exactly the same. However, primates and humans and lots of other things, sexual reproduction, where the kids are going to be different in nature. And continuing the print sphere, a highlight from the stack, I had an excellent chat with Diane Hansen. Her official title is Tashin's Sexy Book Editor. She just wrote an impressive compilation on the history of men's magazines. Let's have a listen to my chat with her. You know, it's a small percentage. It's probably only about 5% of what Tashin publishes, but it is huge in the minds of the public and it has had a huge impact on branding Tashin, on creating what we know Tashin to be because also in our first meeting, I was a little worried coming from 25 years of making men's magazines I was worried about transitioning to art books. I thought I was going to have to forget everything I knew, everything that I had done before and somehow become arty. And Benedict said, no, I want you to do exactly the kind of stuff that you have been doing up until this point, and we will not 
change the quality of these books at all. Many other publishers, if they have sexy books, they hide them under some kind of sub-department. They won't put their big successful company name on them. They make them more cheaply. They distribute them differently. And he said, we will make our sexy books with exactly the same quality and exactly the same pride as we make all our other books. I like that word you said, pride, because even some other publishers, perhaps they will try to intellectualize a little bit too much. And that's that's fantastic, the word you said. And this project must be special for you because it's, you're, you're rightly said, you, you worked in that industry for, for quite a long time. What was the first actually magazine that you worked, first men's magazine? The first one was the most extreme one. It was the only hardcore one that I did. I was... 25 years old. I had ended up in a little industrial town in Pennsylvania just by strange coincidence where I met someone who was doing advertising for a man who owned a string of sex shops, adult bookstores, as we call them in the U.S. And while doing this man's publicity, he was asked to make a magazine for this guy. Hustler had just come out And they both were working in some way for the mob. And so they had they had connection to the same underworld figures. And he felt if Larry Flint could do a magazine, he could do a magazine. But he didn't know anyone to do it. So he just asked his publicity guy. And that guy asked me, I had no background, I was a respiratory therapist at a local hospital, oh. and we just took it on. And we learned as we went, and we made it a hardcore magazine called Puritan, because the adult bookstore owner had had a little newsletter, that, a little thing he printed and, you know, handed out in his, his sex shops called Puritan. So he wanted to use that title. And we made this hardcore magazine that basically sold in sex shops. Well, and it's interesting that it's called Puritan because, of course, the collection of, of, of books ends in 1979. And it's interesting. I don't know. I think we are living through a little bit of a puritanical phase. But what, what, what's your view on that? I mean, I, I think you're kind of the expert here. So uh, do you see some of those imageries in, in the newsstands? Would you see that today? I think it would be quite difficult, right? Well, of course, there are very few magazines left. Everyone has moved online. In 1997, this began, you know, my magazine, the magazine that introduced me to to Benedict, that he, he was a huge fan of this magazine in Germany as a young man, was called Leg Show. And it was a fetish magazine, lingerie, feet, female dominance, transvestism, all kinds of fetishy things. And our, our sales were going up, 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 up. And then in 1997, we lost 10% of our sales. And we're like, we don't understand. The next year, we lost 10% more. And then we found out this was happening to all the magazines because the internet had arrived. And on the internet, anything could be shown. There was no way to track it down. So suddenly there was this move away from soft core imagery for men's magazines and gay magazines to hardcore material that couldn't be tracked down and couldn't be controlled online because the internet is international. 
So this moved heavily there. Some magazines tried to use hardcore, like the American magazine Penthouse went to hardcore. Still, it didn't improve their sales because when you had the internet, you could watch in private. You didn't have a paper magazine that you had to hide from your wife, that you had to hide from your kids. Suddenly, it was all ephemeral. You could just look at digital images and shut down the computer and walk away and no one would know. And this led to the current age that we're in now where Gen Z, you know, this generation of, do you have the same thing there, I'm assuming? Yeah. Gen Z people in their late teens to their mid-20s, they are the first generation that grew up with ubiquitous online pornography. And they, on average, started viewing it at 11 or 12 years old, seeing the hardest, most extreme material. And this has had a huge impact on this generation that they are having less sex than any known generation in history. They are far more prudish. We are seeing a 4,000% increase in teen girls who want to transition to be males. And when I start asking some of these people online what effect pornography had on them, I'll get answers like, I can't talk about it. I was so traumatized by the first porn I saw. And I think that's helping to drive this as well, that a 12-year-old girl sees an anal gangbang, you know, sees girls being choked, sees some of the stuff that is easily available online. She doesn't want to grow up to be a woman and to feel like she's going to be having to have this kind of sex. So it seems that our new Puritanism, and there is something called Puritines here in the U.S. that they don't want to have sex. They disapprove of other teens who are having sex. But it's not that they're not having any sex. There's just a lot of masturbation going on. So that they are looking at pornography and masturbating and pulling away from actual sexual contact with other people. And as we like to do here on The Curator every week, a lovely recipe for you from the Austrian Alps, a recipe from Jacob Zeller and Ethel Hoon. Hi, my name is Ethel Hoon. Uh, I'm a chef. Hi, I'm Jakob Zeller. I'm also a chef. And together we run a restaurant Klosterle in Lechvorarlberg in Austria. And today we want to talk about a dish that is really dear to our hearts and we really like it for the winter months, which is our buckwheat miso gotan. So the recipe starts with whatever vegetables are in season. Um, right now we're working with salsify and some uh, curly kale. Um, you start by peeling the salsify. Um, and then blanching it very quickly in, uh, in water um, just until it's soft. Uh, you remove it from the water, cool it down and you do the same with the kale. The really uh, key ingredient to this uh, gratin is uh, the sauce that we make with uh, miso and cream. So here at Klosterle, Ethel makes a really delicious toasted buckwheat miso. But if you don't have to happen an ethyl at your home, you can uh, buy shiro miso from any store. And uh, you mix the miso into cream and uh, reduce it a little bit. It's about like 
two spoons of miso for 500 milliliters of cream. Reduce it down for about 10 minutes. Pour it over the vegetables that you have beautifully arranged in a pan and then gratinate for seven minutes on 200 degrees. You can finish it off with anything crunchy. We like to add um, some toasted buckwheat to the dish, uh, kind of to give the accent of, of nuttiness of buckwheat, but also for some texture. Um, a little swish of lemon juice or vinegar to enliven the dish, uh, and whatever herbs you like. And for a pairing, we suggest uh, Furmint from uh, Eastern Austria. We have a producer we really like, which is uh, Wenzel. And he, his Furmint is, is very, very um, delicate and, and mineral, but at the same time has a good structure and I think also good acidity, and, and I think it really suits the dish. So we hope you try out this recipe at home. It's really comforting for, for colder months. Uh, and we hope to see you in Klosterle sometime soon. Finally, the curator, let's talk about parks. Victoria Newhouse and Alex Pischer, they join us in a discussion on a recent book they wrote, Parks of the 21st Century, and they tell us about some best practice examples of city parks. Parks, as we understand them, are a relatively recent phenomenon that, at least in the U.S., can be traced to roughly the mid-19th century. There's many factors that really began to influence public parks and their development, such as the English picturesque movement, the Industrial Revolution, and the creation of the bourgeoisie class. Increased awareness of public health, as you noted, and in the U.S., really an awareness of the public parks in Europe and a desire to emulate them. So in Europe, many of the public parks were former royal hunting and pleasure grounds, such as Hyde Park. But in the U.S., of course, these types of green spaces don't exist. But the green spaces that do exist are the town common or the green, uh, which was often grazing land for livestock, and then the cemetery, particularly the rural garden cemetery. So, for example, Boston's Mount Auburn Cemetery and Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery were where people would really go for recreational activities and to socialize. And eventually there was a realization that maybe green space could exist that offers a place for recreation without the monuments and memorials as constant reminders of mortality. So, you know, as Victoria noted, a famous example is, of course, New York Central Park, where in the mid-1800s, New York was rapidly uh, growing and lacked green space. So city officials and influential citizens had traveled to Europe's capital cities, saw the famous parks and wanted to emulate them. So to rectify this lack of green space, city officials identified land a bit north of where New York's population center was at the time, which was in lower Manhattan and launched a competition to design a park. And responding to this was the team of Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. Olmsted at the time was a farmer and journalist and editor living in Staten Island, but he'd recently returned from a trip to England where he was inspired by the picturesque and particularly Birkenhead Park, where he saw connections between parks and their ability to spur economic growth. So the Olmsted and Vox plan, which they originally called the Greensward plan and later uh, named Central Park, won and became the country's first large scale public park and really launched Olmsted's career into landscape architecture. Victoria, tell me, when we see the ambitions of people making parks today in some of the places that you've surveyed, do you find many of, of the same motivations in a way, you know, the fitness, health socializing. How do you think the ambitions of park making have changed over time? Well, I think just to go back, I'd like to say that many of the facts surrounding the creation of Central Park 
are still valid. Like, for example, the enormous increase in real estate value of neighborhoods surrounding a park. That happened with Central Park, where real estate values just soared the minute the park was in place. And also the unfortunate movement or moving of people who had lived in the neighborhood before. There's a very, very famous African-American village called Seneca Village that occupied part of the site that Central Park now occupies that were just told to move away. They were forced to move away. And that is comparable to the gentrification that exists today, which is one of the downsides of creating a new park. But to answer your question about what is different, I think the main difference is the awareness of ecological problems, environmental problems connected with climate change. And we tried to pick parks, each one of which addresses these problems, primarily water management. So that is a big difference between what is going on today and the past. Alex, it's fascinating, the early example of Central Park, which has obviously become a benchmark around the world for early park building. But one of the stories that you touch on in the book is obviously the High Line, which has become a kind of oddly dominating tale of reuse of infrastructure to make this linear park that somehow really caught people's imagination in a way that is almost hard to explain. And as someone who's been there several times, certainly on a winter's day, it can be very pleasant. In the summer, you can just be in a, essentially in a queue of people walking along the line. Do you understand why that piece of park building has caught people's imagination globally in such a big way? I think, you know, this idea of reoccupying the sort of wasteland uh, that cities create is fascinating. There's a sort of romantic image, I think, behind it, too. I think, you know, what sort of launched the High Line were uh, this series of photographs that showed a sort of rewilding that was happening along the elevated rail tracks. And I forget the number, Victoria, you might know off the hand, but this has spurred a lot of sort of imitator parks around the world. I think it was over 60 cities around the world that all had plans to try and imitate the High Line. Not all of them, of course, uh, very few of them got built because it's not an inexpensive thing to do. But I mean, it's quite amazing that there were that many imitators. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week.